Now tonight uh, we're looking at God is holy. Uh, there's some vocabulary uh, that we need to consider together. Um, I'm on page two at the top of the page. Uh, the Hebrew word um, kadosh in Hebrew for holy uh, is a word uh, now uh, there is a fallacy that you can commit, and it's sometimes referred to as the etymological fallacy. That is the, the fallacy that a word means what its root means. Uh, and that is actually rarely uh, the case, and I've given a couple of examples here. The word lady is actually derived from the old English, which means a loaf digger or a kneader of bread. Uh, so that, uh, to say that lady is derived from its root... Uh, is an etymological fallacy. But in the case of uh, the Hebrew word kadosh, uh, there, are, there are two possible meanings, and, and both of them are actually, I think, employed in the usage of these words. A word means what it means in its use and in its context, rather than what it means in its root. Um, but in this case, in the Hebrew, it, the Hebrew word for holy can mean one of two things. It can mean uh, an idea, a geographical idea of separation, that you separate, um, that, you, that you cut off. Um, but it can also mean uh, to burn. Uh, it can also mean uh, the, the idea of purity that is uh, the product of burning. Uh, so those two ideas are pre- prevalent in uh, the Old Testament word. In the New Testament... Uh, the word hagios in the New Testament being holy in the sense of uh, superior moral qualities, possessing essential divine qualities in contrast with what is human. That's one definition of hagios, the word holy. Uh, it's very important to understand, however, that in the Greek, uh, the same word is employed for holy, for saint, for sanctification. Uh, We don't have a a verb form in English of the word holy. We don't say to holify. Uh, The word doesn't exist. So we we go from holiness to sanctification, to sanctify. But in the Greek, it's the same word. Uh, And the word holiness, the word saint, uh, the word verb sanctification is the same uh, part of the same group of, uh, of words. Now, it's used, uh, the word holy is used in the Bible of, first of all, inanimate objects. Uh, Garments, uh, priestly garments, pots, pans, uh, holy anointing oil, a holy place. Uh, Inanimate uh, objects, uh, utensils, cooking pots, plates, spoons, knives, forks, ladles, uh, all of these things that were part of the administration of the temple sacrifices uh, that the priests would employ. These were holy instruments, not because they shone in the dark. They were holy instruments because they were set apart for holy use. They had a special use. They were, in a sense, consecrated. They were, they were set apart. They were used for special purposes. So the idea of consecration in the sense of separation or 
separation for another use, for a special use. Uh, Ezekiel twenty-two twenty-six. Her priests have done violence to my law and have profaned my holy things. They've made no distinction between the holy and the common. Neither have they taught the difference between the unclean and the clean. And they've disregarded my Sabbaths so that I am profaned among them. Now the distinction here is between something that is holy and something that is common. It's not a distinction between holy and impious. It's a distinction between something that is used commonly for everyday use and something that is used for a special use. I suppose you have China uh, silverware that you only use maybe Thanksgiving dinner or Christmas dinner uh, once a year. It's, uh, it's uh, for special occasions. And that's the kind of idea uh, behind the use of the word holy uh, in the Old Testament uh, in particular. Holy can be used in the Old Testament uh, for space, uh, for uh, holy space, uh, holy uh, geography, a holy territory. Uh, the most famous passage of all uh, in Isaiah chapter 6. Uh, the year that King Uzziah died, I saw the Lord high and lifted up. Uh, and uh, the seraphs are proclaiming holy, holy, holy. But uh, the, the prequel to the expression of holiness is that the Lord is high and lifted up. Uh, he belongs to a spatial a dimension all to himself. God is uh, outside of our range. Uh, he is, uh, in that sense, unfamiliar. He is transcendent. The idea of holy space, a separation of space. It's also used, of course, of holy time. Uh, and uh, much of the language of the Old Testament with regard to the Sabbath. Uh, remember the Sabbath day to keep it holy, to separate it. To regard it as special, uh, to use it in a different way than you use the other six days of the week. That was the idea of the, of the fourth commandment, the Sabbath ordinance uh, in the Old Testament. It was not that uh, the day was in and of itself any different from any other day. It was 24 hours long, um, but it was holy time. It was consecrated time. It was set apart for holy use. Now note uh, that the holiness of Israel was described uh, in spatial terms. You shall be holy to me, for I, the Lord, am holy and have separated you from the peoples that you should be mine. So the, the separation, the gathering together of the people of God as a nation um, in a geographical sense uh, was, was part of the way in which the word holiness then is employed uh, in the Old Testament. Now some of that, indeed a great deal of that, carries over into a New Testament understanding of holiness, particularly the idea of consecration, of being set apart, of, of, of uh, special uh, use and special um, employment. Uh, Rudolf Otto, uh, not an evangelical, uh, not uh, one to be uh, 
uh, an example in, in many areas of theology, but he wrote this uh, very famous book uh, almost 100 years ago, The Idea of the Holy. Uh, it's one of those um, well-known texts uh, in re- religion in the 20th century. Uh, it's still used. It's, it's dry as dust to read. Um, it, is, uh, it is not for the faint-hearted. Um, but uh, Rudolf Otto uh, brought into the language of holiness, particularly in the theological language of holiness in the 20th century, uh, some important expressions that still uh, are still employed. Uh, one, one such expression is um, the holy other. Note the spelling. Uh, the holy other. W-H-O-L-L-Y. Uh, he is altogether different. God's holiness makes him altogether different. His holiness is an expression of his transcendence. He is, he is the holy other one. It's the creator-creature distinction. Um, let me give you a taste of what he says. That which is quite beyond the sphere of the usual the intelligible and the familiar, which therefore falls quite outside the limits of the canny and is contrasted with it, filling the mind with blank wonder and astonishment. So that's, for Otto, that's what holiness does. It fills you with a sense of astonishment. It fills you with a sense of holy wonder and uh, awe. Uh, He uses uh, the word uncanny. Uh, Actually, he wrote, of course, in German. This is the English translation. uh, The word uncanny. uh, That God doesn't fit our normal experience. That's what the holiness of God essentially is trying to get at. That God is beyond our capability of describing the otherness of God. Now, in what sense is God other than us? In in what sense is God separated from us? Well, in the mode of his being, for a start. Uh, We've been considering some of these in recent weeks. Uh, God is self-existent, the aseity of God. We spent uh, an evening uh, contemplating the aseity of God, the self-existence of God. There never was when God was not Uh, He is the source of the existence of everything that is. But his existence always has been. Uh, God is eternal, understood as uh, being outside of time or atemporal, rather than existing in unending time. Or, as we shall see uh, probably in February of next year, uh, when we look at the doctrine of the Trinity, uh, God is triune. There is... There is more than oneness in the one being of God, in the unity of God. There is only one God, but there is more than one who is that one God. And that triuneness is not contingent. It's not something that's willed. It is essential to the being of God. It is is something that defines how God is in and of himself. And therefore, that, all of that and more puts God in a different category to us. It, that, that is in one sense describing him as holy. He is 
holy in the sense that he is in a category all by himself. Or think of the power of God, uh, that he is the creator, that he made everything that is. All other existence uh, depends on his existence. He has power to make and to, uh, and to uh, remake. Or uh, the non-accountability of God. Uh, think of uh, what Paul says in Romans 9 when Paul is discussing election uh, and, uh, and uh, preterition. And he uses the analogy of the potter and the clay. The clay has no right to demand an accounting of the potter. Will what is molded say to the molder, why have you made me like this? Has the potter no right over the clay to make out of the same lump one vessel for honorable use and another for dishonorable use? Uh, God is accountable to no one except himself. We are accountable to God. Every word, every thought, every action, every deed. We are wholly accountable for uh, everything uh, that we do and say and, and don't do and don't say. But God is non-accountable. God is in a category all by himself. That is a mark of his holiness. That's what holiness essentially means. To be separate, to be distinct, to be other. Or, and this is probably the way that we normally think about holiness. We think about holiness in the sense of a moral category. God is holy, meaning that God is without sin. God is holy in the sense that he is absolutely pure. Uh, the root meaning of kadosh, at least one of the root meanings of kadosh is to burn, and, uh, and therefore uh, to burn with purity, to, to burn away all the dross. He, he burns, uh, think of how he reveals himself to Moses in Exodus 3 in the burning uh, bush. The bush burns, but it's not consumed. So the purity of God. God is light, and in him there is no darkness at all. First John 1 John 1.5 or uh, Habakkuk or is it Habakkuk? Um, we, we've got to sort this out because we're going to look at Habakkuk or Habakkuk uh, on Sunday mornings for the next uh, three weeks. Uh, chapter 1 and verse 13. Uh, you who are of purer eyes than to see or to behold evil and cannot look at wrong, the purity of God. He cannot, he cannot look at sin. He's of purer eyes than to see evil. Um, what that means, of course, the purity of God, the, the holiness which is his purity, his purity which is his holiness, necessitates, therefore, that sin uh, can only be forgiven through atonement. Uh, and that means there's an, there's an absolute necessity for the atonement if there is to be forgiveness. Uh, we'll come to this in a minute, but that means that the wrath of God is the reflex of his holiness. The wrath of God, the anger of God, is the, is the, is the uh, uh, reflex, it is the necessary response of his absolute integrity and purity. Uh, there's also another aspect of the holiness of God, and you see it in 
Uh, Psalm 96 and verse 9, worship the Lord in the beauty of holiness. Uh, That there is something about holiness, there is something about God's otherness, there is something about his transcendence that is a beauty. A beauty in the sense of, and the ESV has splendor, and that actually may be getting at it a little more clearly. God is a great wonder. God is a, a, a great splendor. His holiness is a, is, a, is a thing of great splendor. Or think of how uh, the psalmist puts it in uh, Psalm 27. One thing have I desired of the Lord, that will I seek after, that I may dwell in the house of the Lord all the days of my life, to behold the beauty of the Lord and to inquire in his temple the beauty of holiness. Well, uh, all we've been doing is to say, uh, along with Rudolf Otto, that God is holy other. It is an expression of his holiness. His, he is high and lifted up. He is uh, in a realm all by himself. He, he is in a category all by himself. In a sense, he defies all categorization. He is a holy wonder. He is a great sight. Now, what is our subjective response to God's holiness? And let me go back to Rudolf Otto again. Uh, And Rudolf Otto uh, uses this expression, this Latin expression, mysterium tremendum uh, et fascinans, uh, that God is... uh, uh, um, uh, um, mysterious, tremendous, and fascinating. Uh, mysterious, tremendous, and fascinating. And uh, let's consider those uh, three things together. First of all, um, God is a great mystery. Not in the sense of a, a mystery novel, not in the sense of Miss Marple, uh, not in the sense uh, of, a, of, a, of a whodunit kind of novel, but a mystery in the sense that he is beyond our capacity to find out. Uh, let, me, let me use Luther's famous uh, way of describing it. Uh, Luther distinguished between the Deus absconditus and the Deus revelatus. There is the God who is revealed, and he reveals himself in creation, and he reveals himself in providence and he reveals himself in anthropomorphisms and anthropopathisms that we were considering uh, several weeks ago and he reveals himself in Jesus. He, He makes himself known. But what we know of God we only know a little. He's pulled back the curtains and disclosed a little glimpse of himself. But there is a vastness to God's being that cannot be fathomed. He is in Luther's term, the Deus absconditus. Let's let's pick up some scriptures here from Old and New Testaments uh, to support that idea. Uh, But will God indeed dwell on earth? This is at the the dedication of Solomon's temple. Uh, Will God indeed dwell on earth? Behold, heaven and the highest heaven cannot contain you, how much less this house that I have built. The, The vastness the mystery uh, of God, or Paul in Ephesians 3, to me, though I am the very least of all the saints, this grace was given me to preach to the Gentiles 
the unsearchable riches of Christ. The unsearchable riches of Christ. There are riches of Christ, but they are unsearchable. As uh, Augustine uh, said when he was talking about uh, the doctrine of the Trinity, I see the depths, but I cannot see the bottom. The mystery of God. Uh, But also... um, The holy tremors was uh, how uh, Rudolf Otto put it. Uh, God produces in us a sense of awe. Now, I've said before, and and I I keep on saying, you, you may only use the word awesome once a year, and you may only use it as a descriptive of God. Ben and Jerry's ice cream is not awesome. And if you use the word awesome for Ben and Jerry's ice cream, what word are you going to use to describe God? God God produces a sense of awe, a sense of holy wonder, a holy tremble. Uh, We are created beings. Uh, Abraham answered and said, Behold, I have undertaken to speak to the Lord. I, who am but dust and ashes... He's conscious as he comes before God of the vastness and the greatness and the, and the mystery, the awesomeness of God. And he is so small and so little, just dust and ashes in comparison. Uh, or Otto again, uh, submergence into nothingness before an overpowering absolute might. That is the That is the human response to the holiness of God. Submergence into nothingness before an overpowering absolute might. And then the third category that he implied was fascination. There is mystery, uh, there is awe, but there is also fascination. Uh, Fascinans in uh, Latin. God God is enthralling. God is captivating. There is a There is an intimidating aspect of the holiness of God, particularly if you think of it in terms of its purity. God is of purer eyes than to behold uh, iniquity. And and there there is a sense in which the holiness of God is intimidating. But there's also a sense in which the holiness of God is a beautiful thing. The beauty of holiness. And it's, it's it's, it's a fascinating thing. It's riveting. It's captivating. It's a, it's a thing of great splendor. You know, Moses saying, I will now turn aside and see this great sight, why the bush is not burnt. This was a, a representation of God and a representation of the holiness of God, the purity of God, that God burns. Uh, but Moses wanted to see it. He was fascinated by it. He was drawn uh, by it. Uh, actually, that's why, of course, um, that's why we can appreciate beauty. That's why there is such a thing as beauty. You know, beauty isn't just in the eye of the beholder. There there is an objective category called beauty. Um, I don't want to go down this road, but in in, in terms of the appreciation of art... Whether it's music or or poetry or literature or painting or architecture or whatever it is, there is there is a category called beauty, and there's something objective to it. It's not it's not purely subjective. There are objective factors to beauty, 
and, and we can appreciate beauty. We can, we can sense something that is inherently beautiful because it is a response to the beautiful character of God uh, himself. Now, some practical um, considerations here. If, and, and all we've been doing is trying to explore uh, the basic idea of uh, holiness, uh, whether that's in the Hebrew uh, Kadosha, whether it's in the Greek uh, Hagios, one thing that's emerged is the idea, the category, the notion of separation. Um, I saw the Lord high and lifted up. Uh, the idea of separation, the idea of holy space, separated for holy use, the idea of holy time, uh, the Sabbath. Remember to uh, keep the Sabbath uh, holy, the day holy. Um, and, that means, uh, and that means ideas of separation in holiness. Now there are some dangers here, and I want to... Uh, I want to mention um, one of them, and uh, one of the dangers of uh, separation is, is, of course, the idea of asceticism. Uh, this, was, uh, this was how the medieval Catholic Church and the growth of the monasteries and so on viewed holiness, uh, and the idea of sanctification as essentially separation in the sense of asceticism. Uh, and the Reformation was a protest against that. That, that it wasn't separation from the material world, it was separation from sin, and that's a difference. It's, that, that holiness is not separating yourself from the material world. It's not separating yourselves from things of beauty like, uh, like art or music. Uh, I've told you this story. I, I, I came across a form of asceticism just a few months after I was uh, converted. I... It's way too long a story, but I, I grew up having an obsession with classical music. I still have an obsession with classical music, but, but uh, my grandfather died when I was five. He left me all of his classical records. My earliest memory in life is listening to Puccini's La Boheme on his knee, and I think it was about two and a half. And uh, these, uh, these records of his, about 500 of them, I, I treasured. And then I got saved when I was 18. And then three, four months later, somebody told me if I wanted to be holy, I had to get rid of these records. So I got rid of them the next day. And have regretted it uh, pretty much for the last 40 years. Uh, not least because of their sentimental value and because they were my grandmother, uh, grandfather's. And, um, but it was a form of asceticism. It, it was... It was uh, I don't, regret, I don't regret the motivation. I don't regret the intention behind what I did. I just regretted the lack of knowledge behind what I did. And it was a form of asceticism that said, if you want to be holy, you know, you, you, there are certain things you shouldn't do, or there are, certain, there are certain, uh, certain parts of the world that you shouldn't go to. But... but Holiness is not separation from the physical world in however you want to describe that. Holiness is separation from sin. Now that's why at the Reformation, you know, one of the, one of the ways the Reformers defined holiness in terms of the, the personal lives of the Reformers was, of course, that they got married. It was very important that Martin Luther got married. 
it was very important that John Calvin got married. And I don't think John Calvin really wanted to get married. And he had to be forced into getting married. He had to be almost threatened into getting married. And, and the story of uh, the advertisements that were placed in various cities... Uh, and you can read the accounts of those advertisements looking for a wife for John Calvin. Uh, and they would come, they would make the trek, and he would take one look at them, and, and that was it. It was no. Uh, and eventually, of course, he marries this wonderful uh, woman who, who was herself uh, a widow and, uh, and had uh, two children and, uh, and had been at one time a nun in just the same way as uh, Martin Luther married uh, an ex-nun. But it was very important for them to be married and to put the sanction of blessing on marriage and, and conjugal relationships within marriage. Because holiness is not, is not asceticism. Uh, Martin Luther, I've got his picture there, and uh, Christian Liberty, uh, he wrote, uh, he wrote uh, a very important book in 1520, The Freedom of the Christian Man. It's one of the great uh, books of the Reformation uh, that we think of the Reformation in terms of justification by faith alone in Christ alone. Or we think of uh, the Reformation in terms of the five solars. Um, but the Reformation was also, was also a movement uh, defining true holiness from false holiness and true Christian liberty uh, and uh, the freedom of the human uh, conscience. God alone is Lord of the conscience and has left it free from the doctrines and commandments uh, of men. So we're looking together at uh, practical uh, considerations of holiness. One, one of those is separation. Separation in the sense of purity. Uh, separation in the sense of personal holiness. And think of uh, uh, the book of Leviticus, uh, the repetition of what's called the holiness code, be holy for I am holy. Uh, because God is holy, we also are to be holy. And so there's this uh, uh, there is this imperative, it's, uh, it's, an, it's an absolute requirement on those uh, who call themselves uh, the Lord's people uh, to pursue after holiness without which no man shall see the Lord. Uh, reverence. Uh, therefore let us be grateful for receiving a kingdom uh, that cannot be shaken and thus let us offer to God acceptable worship uh, with reverence and awe, for our God is a consuming fire. Uh, it's the idea, the root idea here is the holiness of God. He's a consuming fire. It's the purity of God. Uh, he is of purer eyes than to behold iniquity. And therefore, uh, we, should, we should pursue uh, holiness with reverence and awe, uh, with a sense of uh, of uh, holy wonder, but also with reverence, uh, a seriousness, um, and that, uh, that, that God is, you know, we use the word worship, but, it, but that's an English word, and it's derived from the old English uh, word meaning worship. God is worth worshiping because of his great value, because of who he is. Uh, we are to bow down. Uh, in holy wonder and to pursue after holiness. Well, we'll come back to the 
idea of personal holiness and sanctification uh, later on uh, in our studies, uh, probably a year from now when we uh, look at uh, the order salutis. Uh, we'll look at uh, the application of redemption and we'll talk about such things as uh, faith and repentance and justification and adoption and sanctification and we'll talk about, uh, about positional sanctification and progressive sanctification and uh, perseverance and glorification and all of those uh, particular aspects. Um, but here's a link here that God's holiness means that we too Uh, are are intended in Christ to live lives of holiness. Now a corollary of the uh, holiness of God is the anger of God. And uh, this, we we talked last week about the love of God, uh, but we must also speak about uh, the anger of God. Uh, It is the reflex of God's holiness towards sin. Now, C.H. Dodd, uh, many of you are familiar, I'm sure, with the name C.H. Dodd uh, from the 20th century. Um, uh, He was Welsh by birth, although lived in England uh, and uh, taught in Oxford uh, most of his uh, life. Uh, He was uh, hugely influential in uh, translations. Uh, the revised standard version, the RSV, for example, was heavily influenced by the thought Uh, of C.H. Dodd and particularly C.H. Dodd's complete rejection of the idea uh, that there is anger in God. Uh, He completely dismissed uh, the idea of the wrath of God or the anger of God as something that was essentially sub-Christian. So he was unhappy with the idea, that's to put it mildly, Uh, and he's uh, He's especially unhappy with the translation uh, of a particular word in the New Testament, a Greek word, helasmos, in the New Testament, which is uh, translated, for example, in the ESV, it's translated using the word propitiation. Uh, The NIV went for a softer sort of translation and and talked about uh, a sacrifice of atonement or or some such phrase uh, in the NIV. Uh, The word propitiation, you know, it's not a word we use every day. Uh, I I doubt that you've gone through the week, unless unless you've used it in a particularly Christian religious context, I doubt that you've used the word propitiation in a sentence. But the ESV has restored the word propitiation because the translators of the ESV are saying to us, this is a word we have got to use and maintain because it's the only word in English that carries with it the idea of propitiating anger because one, one of the aspects of the cross, one of the aspects of what Jesus is accomplishing at the cross is dealing with the anger of God, the wrath of God against sin and sacrifice of atonement doesn't do that you have to use this word propitiation or if you can invent another word, fine. But un- until we can, the ESV has said we need, to, we need to employ this English word propitiation because contained within the meaning of propitiation is the idea of the wrath uh, or the anger of God. Now, of course, um, uh, C.H. Dodd said that the 
the anger of God that you read of in the New Testament, you mean, you know, you read the New Testament and there's, you'll find the expression, the wrath of God. You'll find it in Romans chapter 1 and verses 18 and following, the second half of Romans 1. The wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men. So what you do with a passage that speaks of the wrath of God. And C.H. Dodd said that the wrath of God is not personal. The wrath of God, as Paul is using it, is always impersonal. What he means by that is there are consequences to sin. You know, if you sin, the bad consequences follow. That's what the wrath of God is. The wrath of God is, is impersonal. It's not, it's not God's retribution. It's not God's anger. It's just that if you do bad things, bad things will follow. There are consequences to, to bad uh, behavior. In other words, C.H. Dodd has removed the wrath of God from the being of God into the realm of providence. Bad things happen as consequences to bad behavior. That's what the wrath of God actually means. But it's not, it, it doesn't mean, C.H. Dodd said, that God himself is angry. Except that is precisely what Paul is saying. The wrath of God is revealed. He, he gave them over to a reprobate mind and vile affection and, over, and gave them over to uncleanness. That's a deliberate activity on the part of God. You, you can't make the wrath of God impersonal. Um, and the idea of abstract law... The wrath of God is impersonal, it's just, uh, it's just providence, it's just uh, a consequence to bad behavior. The, the, the idea of abstract law is a fiction. There is no law in the cosmos that operates independently from God. You know, when you woke up this morning depressed <laughs> and cast down and saying, Woe is me, for I am undone. God is still sovereign. He is in absolute and total control. There isn't an event, there isn't a circumstance, not one ballot that went in the box, went in without God's decree. Now, if you don't believe that, do not drive home this evening. Do not drive home on I-20 this evening where they're doing a lot of road work and Drivers are doing crazy things. Because if you don't believe that God is absolutely sovereign, you'd better stay here. Actually, you're not safe here either. <laughs> now the Bible is full of references to divine uh, anger. And uh, C.H. Dodd, for all his uh, immense learning, and he was a very learned individual, um, he was Welsh, of course. Um, uh, the, the, the Bible is full of references to divine anger. And I've, uh, I've cited a couple of passages, uh, three or four of them. Um, let me just pick out Isaiah 63. Who is this who comes from Edom in crimsoned garments from Basra? He who is splendid in his apparel marching in the greatness of his strength. It is I speaking in righteousness, mighty to save. Why is your apparel red and your garments like his who treads in the winepress? 
I have trodden the winepress alone, and from the peoples no one was with me. I trod them in my anger and trampled them in my wrath. Their lifeblood spattered on my garments and stained all my apparel, for the day of vengeance was in my heart, and my year of redemption has come. I looked, but there was no one to help. I was appalled, but there was no one to uphold. So my own arm brought me salvation, and my wrath upheld me. I trampled down the peoples in my anger. I made them drunk in my wrath, and I poured out their lifeblood on the earth. That's, that's very, very graphic. Uh, this is the prophet Isaiah. He's uh, preaching in the uh, late 7th century BC. He's uh, prophesying of the coming of the Assyrian hordes. Uh, who will trample down the northern kingdom uh, of Israel uh, and take Samaria, the capital, uh, into captivity. And uh, there was death. And, uh, you know, the Assyrians were regarded as some of the most militaristic, uh, the machinery of war. And, and Isaiah is depicting God coming, like, like somebody who's treading red grapes, uh, in, a, in a vine press and as he treads on them they spatter red juice all over his garments and it's a, it's a depiction of course of, of blood and it's, uh, it's, it's incredibly graphic but it's, it's not impersonal this is the wrath of God this is the holy reflex of God against sin uh, that's what the Drowning of the Egyptians at the Red Sea was about. That's what the invasion of the Assyrians was about. That's what the Babylonian uh, captivity uh, was about. Well, look at Revelation 3.19. Those whom I love, I reprove and discipline. So be zealous and repent. There is a, there is a discipline in God. There is a holy anger. It's not an anger that's out of control. Only because wrath is personal is mercy possible. Right? You, can't, you, can't propitiate, you can't propitiate a physical law. You, you can't placate a physical law. You, you can't placate providence. We have the law of gravity. There is no provision within God's universe for placating that law. It's only because God is personal who can talk and respond to our pleas. Only because of that personal, personal dimension is it possible to plead for him to placate his anger and his wrath. Now what are the objects of God's wrath? And they are, uh, they are diverse. Israel uh, in the Old Testament, Old, the Old Testament church uh, was the object of God's wrath. Actually, more than anything else in the Old Testament, um, in the crosshairs of God's wrath, is Israel, uh, his own people. Just as Paul says, what the law says, it says to those who are under the law. So that when the Torah speaks of anger, it speaks to those who are under the Torah. Uh, the nations, the, 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 the foreign nations that surrounded uh, Israel... Uh, there is an emphasis upon God's judgment on the nations, and that's part of what's taking place in Isaiah 63. Um, that, uh, that, that God is uh, coming 
uh, in judgment uh, upon uh, the northern kingdom of Israel uh, with the Assyrians, but the Assyrians eventually will be trodden down. And Isaiah sees the coming uh, of the Persian Empire, and he sees uh, the coming of Cyrus, uh, who will deliver the people back to their land again, and the Assyrians will be trodden down in the winepress uh, of God's uh, wrath. So the nations, uh, the lost in perdition, and their eternal destruction, um, that the wrath of God will be upon them forever. Uh, they will be cast into outer darkness where there is wailing and gnashing of teeth, uh, where there will be no gospel, uh, where there will be no smile of God's countenance. Uh, so the doctrine of uh, hell and the doctrine of eternal perdition uh, comes under the rubric here of the wrath of God towards the lost in perdition. But also the elect until they come to Christ. That's what Paul says in Ephesians 2. We were children of wrath, just like the rest. Until that time when we are drawn effectually by the Spirit to believe in the Lord Jesus and to repent of our sins and to receive the Spirit of adoption, uh, whereby we cry, Abba, uh, Father. We're not born justified, and we're not born as God's children. Uh, and uh, sometimes that's expressed even in our own consciences uh, when uh, they condemn us. So the objects then of divine uh, wrath. Uh, we've been talking tonight about um, the holiness of God. And I want to take you back uh, to the quotation right on the very uh, first page from R.C. Sproul. Um, I had uh, dinner with R.C. Sproul uh, last night and uh, told him I would, be, uh, I would be quoting from probably uh, his most influential book. Uh, he's probably written well over a hundred books, uh, but the holiness of God is one of uh, his, his great, uh, great achievements. Uh, and he asked, if I were to ask a group of Christians what the top priority of the church is, I'm sure I'd get a variety of answers. Some would say evangelism, others social action, still others spiritual nurture. But I've yet to hear anyone talk about what Jesus' priorities were. What is the first petition of the Lord's Prayer? Jesus said, this then is how you should pray, our Father in heaven. The first line of the prayer is not a petition. It's a form of a personal address. The prayer continues, hallowed be your name, your kingdom come. We often confuse the words, hallowed be your name, with part of the address, as if the words were, hallowed is your name. In that case, the words would merely be an ascription of praise to God. But that is not how Jesus said it. He uttered it as a petition, as the first petition. We should be praying that God's name be hallowed, that God be regarded as holy. And uh, that uh, is... Uh, what is of the topmost uh, priority, the chief priority of the church, is to express the holiness uh, of God. The holiness of God in our worship, in our personal lives, in our family, 
in our speech, in our conduct, in how we think and talk about God, uh, because God is holy. Let's pray together. Father, we, we thank you. We have been considering uh, tonight uh, things that are uh, difficult, particularly when we, when we think of your holy wrath against sin. You are of purer eyes than to behold iniquity. We think of how that is expressed uh, in providence. We think of how that is expressed on uh, your enemies. We, we think of how that is expressed in discipline upon those whom you love. We think of the words of Romans chapter 1, that the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men. And that the world is in the state that it is in because it is evidence of your wrath that you have removed some of the restraints that otherwise keep us in civilization. Father, we do pray in the church especially that you would give us a glimpse of your holy nature and your holy character. That we truly would hallow your name, regard it as holy, as other as mysterious, as tremendous, as a, as, as a name that invokes in us a sense of holy awe and beauty. So bless us, we pray. We thank you for the gospel. Thank you for the blood of Christ that covers all of our sins, that we need fear that wrath no more. So help us, we pray. We ask it all in Jesus' name. Amen.